0: Beloved, before we open up uh, the word of God for our message this morning, please join me as we go to the Lord and pray over the offering that will be collected in various and sundry ways this week. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your great provision uh, for the forgiveness of sin we praise you and thank you how wonderfully, abundantly you provide for each of us individually and for us corporately, in the same way, Lord Jesus, that you care for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. How much more wonderfully do you provide for us? And Lord, we pray as we take a portion of what you've entrusted into our care and give back to you, that you will be glorified, that you will bless the gift and the giver, that brothers and sisters will be encouraged, and that men and women here. And around the world where we are blessed to co-labor, we'll hear the good news and be forgiven of their sins and be adopted into your families for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we give. Amen. Uh, beloved, I want to uh, begin this morning by talking about two partners in crime from the early 20th century, two evolutionists, one American, one German. Uh, There was a man, Granville Stanley Hall. He was uh, the first here in America on a number of fronts. He was the first man in America, first person in America to get a PhD in psychology. He was the first president of the American Psychology Association. He was the first to establish a psychology lab in the United States. And even as I was thinking of that, that little phrase psychology lab might uh, be in the running for the most glaring example of an oxymoron alongside of jumbo shrimp and government intelligence. But be that as it may, what Hall did was he combined the poison of evolution with the poison of psychology. And in 1904, Hall published a book called Adolescence, its relations to physiology, anthropology, sociology, sex, crime, religion, and education. And what he did was, in his book, he argued that the stages in a child's development parallel in man's evolutionary development. And it was interesting because that was the exact same kind of made-up conjured error as his compatriot, Ernst Haeckel, who was a German evolutionist. So again, Hall published his book in 1904. In 1905, Ernst Haeckel published a book entitled The Struggle Over Evolutionary Thinking. And this was a book where he espoused the very well-known made-up theory of the recapitulation theory, which said that ontology recapitulates phylogeny, basically saying the exact same kind of error as Hall did, saying that the development of the baby in the womb follows after the evolutionary model that was supposedly found in the strategy of phylogeny. In both cases, just like evolution, these are completely made up with no basis in true science. And back to Hall, the reason I brought him out is this was the birth of the myth of adolescence. You see, the idea that there's some kind of midground where there's a state of being of child development that's in between being a child and being an adult. Whereas when we look at scripture and when we look at life, when we look at science, physiologically, biologically, and biblically, there are two states. You are either a child or an adult. So that's why it should be called and understood as the myth of adolescence. By way of example, that's why you will never hear me refer to the people in our youth ministry as children or kids. You'll hear me refer to them as young men and women because that is precisely what they are. Well, that was in the early 20th century. A couple months ago, when we began our treatment of Paul's treatment, when Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 talked about being filled with the Spirit rather than being drunk with wine, and he began in verse 21 to talk about a Spirit-filled marriage. Then he gave his great words from 22 through verse 33 of Ephesians 5 to wives and husbands. Now, in the first four verses of chapter 6, he's giving his words to children and parents and then later he'll do to employers and employees or masters and slaves but back at the beginning when I launched this I mentioned something that many of you are very familiar with in 1995 Hillary Clinton wrote her book it takes a village where she espoused a global village world of state-sponsored parenting Or you flash forward to even more current times. In 2020, the self-identified Marxist founders of BLM called for the destruction of parental authority. They said, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages. And beloved, the point here is there's nothing new under the sun. In Ecclesiastes 1, verse 9, that's what Solomon said. And we understand from the very beginning of the Bible that the God-ordained first and fundamental structure is the home, is marriage, and is the parent-child relationship. And the enemy of God, Satan and the world, attacks first the home. And the first area of assault is the husband-wife relationship. The second area of assault is the parent-child relationship, and that's why even now there is such a significant attempt to undermine the patriarchy, undermine the God-ordained structure of the husband and the father as the head, as the loving shepherd leader of the household. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. You see, We understand that God makes it clear from Genesis all the way through Revelation, and certainly here in Ephesians, that parental authority is an essential element. And any true even sociological study, even from those outside of the Christian purview, understand that parental authority is an essential element of a civilized and stable society. So this rebellion against patriarchy is not New And for us as believers, this is another area in which we are able to trust the authority, reliability, and sufficiency of Scripture. Beloved, please listen as I read our, uh, well, our passage is verse 4. But listen as I read verses 1 through 4 to take this section of God's charge to children and to parents. Ephesians 6 and verse 1. Children. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, what we will see here in this one verse, verse four, are five markers of biblical fatherhood. We see restraint, nourishment, discipline, instruction, and motivation. And what we'll see is at the beginning of verse four, Paul begins with the negative, then he goes to the positive. He begins with a don't, and then he gives the do's. And this is going to be a two-part series. Now, One way in which I could have approached this is I could have done, well, the first part, the first half this week and the second part next week. But since it's been three weeks since I preached here, I didn't want to come here and just dump a bunch of don't on you and leave you hanging without any of the do. So what we're going to do is we'll look at all five of these markers kind of at a high skimming level with a focus to understand this dynamic this week and then next week we'll follow the same basic outline at least that's the plan right now we reserve the right to change as i may see fit but follow the same outline and dig deeper into applying the truths that we would hopefully lord willing understand even from today and beloved we know that surely raising a child is among the greatest of blessings and the deepest of challenges and the intent here is that you will Know and understand how to shepherd the heart of your child to the heart of his or her Savior. And ultimately, the main goal, the overarching purpose for any Christian parent, for any Christian father, is that your children will come to know and obey the Lord. Well, beloved, our text begins, if you look at verse 4, with Paul addressing the Christian fathers. He says, and fathers now depending on your translation you may have a translation that say and parents so it is true that this greek word here pateras sometimes can mean parents for example in hebrews 11 the author of hebrews uses it there and the translators rightly translated it. hebrews eleven twenty three: moses was hidden for three months by his parents but the way Paul uses it here, remember back at the very beginning in verse 1, he said, children, obey your parents. And he used the more common and a different word that specifically means parents. And then in verse 2, he talks about mother and fathers so clearly mothers and fathers are involved here but because Paul used that more common different word for parents back in verse 1 unequivocally here God through the apostle Paul is directing and focusing his attention on the fathers now to be sure you dear wives and mothers you're not left out of this this is not restricted to the fathers but We're going to do this the way God does this here by addressing the fathers. And this makes perfect sense because when we look at Paul's letter to Ephesians, in my estimation, his letter to the Ephesians has a greater emphasis on the fatherhood of God and God the Father than any of the other Pauline letters that I'm aware of. And we understand We should understand that fatherhood, our understanding of fatherhood, derives its existence and its experience from God. Even the name father, the title of God the father, that didn't ascend up from us based on our human understanding and experience of what it means to be a father here. No, our understanding of fatherhood comes down to us from above. That's why For example, in the context of Paul draping the entire letter with the fatherhood of God, remember back in verse 2 of chapter 1, in his opening greeting, the Apostle Paul said, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he moved from the greeting to an opening eulogy in verse 3. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he opens with saying, God our Father. And he is also the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that sets the stage even of this intensely applied exhortation that the Apostle Paul gives to you, Christian Fathers. We know that God created male and female in His image. God created and ordained marriage and the family. And you men who are blessed to be fathers, this is what God expects of you as a Christian father. Now, Flowing from this emphasis on relationship that we saw even at the end of chapter 5, we know that the wife's submission to her husband in verses 22 through 24 of chapter 5, that that is a model and a witness to the world of the church's submission to Christ. You men know that your love for your wife that God has given you is a model and a witness to the world of Christ's love for his bride, the church. In the same way, man, your care for your children that God has given to you is a model and a witness to the world of God the Father's love and care of you as his child. And it is a witness and a model to your child of God the Father's love and care. That is what is at stake here. And as a father, you are always saying something to your child about God in the way in which you relate to your children. There's no escape. There's no mythical Switzerland that you can find yourself in. You are either by your behavior displaying truth about God or telling lies about God. Uh, The Christian author David Fettis had these words to say, beginning with the negative before he gets to the positive. He said, there are few sins that are as terrible as a father damaging his children by evil conduct, making the very title, Father, a dirty word in the mind of his child, and blaspheming the name of God the Father. And few things are as wonderful as... As a father relating to his children in such a way they see God in him and get to know God the Father through the fatherhood of their dad. So again, man, your child is always observing and watching. You are her first picture of what God is like. And what sort of picture is she getting is the question. Give your children, give your daughter, give your son a noble example of Christian life and conduct and trust in God. Well, let's look at the first marker of biblical fatherhood, and that is namely restraint. Now, it's interesting, when we were to, if we were to look at our culture with this attack on the patriarchy and this laissez-faire permissiveness and an almost utter absence of any kind of discipline or patriarchal authority, we might expect at this point God would say, Fathers, make your children obey, or or some kind of positive exhortation, lead your children in this way. But that's not what the Apostle Paul does. He begins with a don't. Now, as good students of the Word, we want to ask the question, why does Paul do that? We've seen him do that elsewhere, so many times he will say, here's the don't, comes by the do. But when we understand the Ephesian culture and the Roman culture into which Paul was writing, that helps us understand perhaps even more why he begins with this first marker, which is a don't, which is restraint. You see, in the Ephesian culture, they had the exact opposite kind of dynamic of surrender of male leadership that we see in our society in fact rome had a law called patria potestas which is the father's power and a roman father had unilateral and absolute father uh, excuse me power over his children Uh, the children were his property in fact he had absolute unilateral power over his children even to the point of life and death william barclay the commentator wrote this about this dynamic A Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands, for the law was already in his own hands, and punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. End quote. In fact, one of the dynamics they had, when a baby was born, the baby would be brought to the Roman father or to the Ephesian father in this context, and if the father received the baby, then the baby was part of his family, or the father could basically say, just not receive it and cast away, and the baby would be put out to die in the street. And to help us understand, to give you an idea of how inscribed this thinking was, there is an extant letter. There's an example of a letter from the very early first century that was written from a Roman husband to his wife who was pregnant. And in the letter, there are words, uh, tender words of love and care towards the wife. And then without missing a beat, the father continues and he says, when you have the child, if it's a son, let it live. If it's a girl, throw it out. And The point here is in his mind and in that culture, there was no inconsistency with his previous tender words of care and affection to the wife and that vicious edict to murder the baby if it was a girl. So it is into this kind of milieu that the Apostle Paul writes these words, do not provoke to anger. Do not exasperate your child. Do not make him or her resentful. Do not goad them into resentment. Uh, Most literally, do not provoke them to wrath. Uh, The word translated provoke to anger is a compound word. The second part of the word is orge, and that's the word we get the word wrath. In fact, in the book of Revelation, that word orge is translated multiple times as the wrath of And what Paul is saying here is, men, don't father in such a way that causes your child to become frustrated, resentful, discouraged, and hopeless, and feel helpless. And it's interesting, the grammar that Paul uses here, he does not use grammar that says, stop doing that. Rather, the grammar he uses says, make it a habit to not even start doing that. So he's not correcting them for a prevalent error in their midst. He is just writing to remind them of this newness of life that is completely countercultural to the culture that they had there. And as I thought about that dynamic, I thought about what perfect grammar for my beloved Santan Bible Church. Not to say stop doing something, but let us all make it a habit to excel yet more and not do this thing. So, What are the characteristics that will exasperate our child, will provoke them to anger? Selfishness, harshness, laziness, cowardice, overindulgence, overprotection, the list can go on. And in fact, we'll expand this more next week by way of application. But to kind of give an illustration of another dynamic, there's one more element that is massively significant, and that is namely hypocrisy. Now, most of you know that I was so blessed about nine days ago to have my beloved daughter married to her wonderful godly now husband, Ryan, and I went out the Friday. I drove out the Friday before the Thursday wedding, and I had already had plans in place, and then I got a message from B- Rebecca. She said, Dad, actually, I'm going down to Newport Beach. It was up in Santa Cruz, up in the north part of the L.A. area, but I'm going to be going down to Newport Beach for my bachelorette weekend, so I'm not going to see you until Monday my brain kind of thought about it a little bit and i said well sweet i said would you like me to maybe meet you in newport beach and take you and your friends out to a nice dinner she said oh i'd love to so i drove out there i had my bike in the back which i was going to do anyway and i got out there a few hours before the dinner and had a nice ride along san and river and then along the beach came back went back to the starbucks parking lot refreshed myself in the uh, restroom and went to the restaurant but the point here is this. So I'm taking my daughter and her friends to this nice restaurant. What would we have thought if the chef came out of the kitchen looking like a slob? Totally stinking and having flies you know, going around his head and just smelly and dirty. Would we want to swallow anything that he provided to us? No. Men, the point here is this. If you live a dirty life that stinks with sin, don't expect your children to swallow anything you say about God. You must live a Christ-like life when your children are looking and when your children are not looking. Don't think you can have a secret life that won't affect your children and your ministry and your witness to them. Hypocrisy stinks and your children will smell it. It's actually Well, and and we can put it this way. Children have a built-in hypocrisy detector. It's actually interesting. One of my children, I don't remember who, actually called me one time on a bit of my hypocrisy. And here's the story behind it. My beloved Margie and I basically had kind of a model that, well, this is what's for dinner, and this is what you're going to eat. And if you don't want to eat it now, when you get hungry enough, you'll eat it. I remember one of my favorite posts not that I'm into posts about myself, but my daughter Rebecca posted something about, here's my dad, when Margie would say, oh, oh, you know, Clay, I don't like this. So, oh, and my response was, oh, what can I get for you? Can I do something else? But then the children, we don't like that. Well, too bad, that's what's for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so all that to say, now we tried to help, you know, we tried to say, okay, here's what they like, but we wanted to give them a good, balanced meal and to help them train and own on their own good, healthy eating, and so that was the dynamic. Now, in all that, here's another element about me. I used to absolutely detest cucumbers. I didn't like the look of them. I didn't like the smell of them. I especially didn't like the taste of them. And when those foul vermin would find their ways into my plate, I would push them aside and not eat them. And I don't remember who it was, but one of my children said, dad, this is kind of inconsistent. You're telling us this. And I was like, wow, how about that? So I started, now now the good news, they're actually, it's actually very healthy. So even to this day, it's still a blessing when there's cucumbers, even if I, if I see them and spot them ahead of time, I say, put the foul vermin on the side. (laughs) They come, I'll eat those first for the vitamins and then I'll get to the good stuff. But that's the point. I was called on it. Well, Beloved, back here on task, we need to be consistent. We need to be willing men to change our behavior, to repent, to ask forgiveness, if if even that is the case. And it's the same kind of uh, message that Paul gave in the companion letter of Colossians. In when Paul was writing to the church in Colossi, in Colossians three twenty one, he said the same command, but with kind of an added element. He said, Colossians three twenty one, fathers do not exasperate your children so that they may not lose heart. And what he was saying to them and what he was saying to the Ephesians what God says to us is don't be unreasonable in your demands and don't live with inconsistent behavior so that your child loses heart and finds it useless and helpless to even try. Recognize, on a side note, recognize that your child, your son or daughter is fallen and flawed and give him or her room to grow, room to fail. So that's the First marker, restraint. The second marker that we find here back in verse 4 of Ephesians 6 is nourishment. And this is the tender care, the loving shepherding of your child's heart that you Christian fathers must exhibit. And this is where Paul begins the do's in contrast to the don't. He says, but, strong contrast, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord bring them up. Point being, they're not going to get there on their own. They need you to shepherd and help and come alongside and encourage them there. And the word translated bring them up literally means to feed them, to nourish them. In fact, it is used in one, only one other location in the Bible, and that was just a few verses earlier in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, when the Apostle Paul was telling the husbands to love your wives the way you already love your body and take care of your body and nourish your body. And the word translated as bring them up is translated rightly by the New American Standard translators as nourish back in chapter 5, verse 29. It means raise your child, nurture your child, prepare your child. And I love the way Calvin, Calvin translated this word as fondly cherish your child. Beloved, what Paul recognizes, what Calvin recognizes, what God established from the beginning is the vital importance of the earliest years of life. Children are fragile creatures in need of the tenderness and security of love of mom and the tenderness and security of the love of their fathers. And you fathers, provide and protect your family. Provide the food and the clothing and the shelter that your family needs. Protect your wife and your children from anything that would harm them. And even, again, flowing from what we've already covered with husbands, and wives. Just as your love for your wife, men, is expressed in your desire to help her express and develop her full potential, so also your care, your nourishment, your raising, your bringing up your child is expressed in helping them develop their full potential as a Christian father in Christ. So, restraint nourishment the third marker of biblical manhood is discipline and this is where we get to a a couplet a pair of bring them up in discipline and instruction there are two ingredients of this nourishment Uh, the first one the discipline has more of an emphasis on actions the second the instruction has more of an emphasis on words The biblical nourishment, you could understand, is moral and it is mental. Uh, It's getting a little bit simplistic, but you could think of the one as the rod and the other as the reproof. Or you could look at one as spanking and the other as speaking. So he says, bring them up in the discipline. The, The word translated as discipline literally means child training. It only appears in one other place in Paul's writing. In 2 Timothy 3.16 where Paul, you know, many of you know the verse, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The same word translated as discipline in Ephesians 6.4 is translated as training in righteousness. In 2 Timothy 3.16. Or in the scripture reading we did earlier in Ephes- or excuse me, uh, Hebrews 12 verses 5 through 13. 5 through 9 in particular where it talks about the discipline of the Lord. Is the model for the discipline of earthly fathers. Hebrews 12.5 the author says. My son do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor faint when you are reproved by him. Again. Paul in Ephesians and the author of Hebrews is pointing to the origin of God the Father for all that we do. Now, when we consider the harsh, cruel, severe discipline that was prevalent in Rome or the absolute utter absence of discipline in our culture, the opposite of harsh discipline is not no discipline. It's right discipline the opposite of no discipline is certainly not harsh discipline it's balanced discipline controlled discipline and when we think of this there are so many examples on the negative side and there are two powerful examples out of scripture of the negative example of no discipline. Eli, when Samuel the prophet was being called and he was under Eli, in 1 Samuel 3, verse 13, God says through to Samuel, God says, I have told him, Eli, that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he, Eli, knew. Watch this. Because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. That is the absence of a father doing what a loving father would do. Or, you know, the story of Absalom and his great rebellion against David. In 2 Samuel 14, verse 28, you read these words. Now, Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem, and he did not see the king's face. Absalom lived in Jerusalem for two years, and he never saw David once. So both Eli and even David, who was a man after God's own heart, although he was an adulterer and a murderer, he was also an absent, derelict father. Sad examples. So men, you are, even when we think even of the context of corporal discipline, you are to administer the rod sparingly purposefully, respectfully, accurately, lovingly, and prayerfully. My beloved Margie and I, whenever we would administer the rod to our children, every single time we would never do it without praying with them afterwards. And next week I'll have some more words of perhaps encouragement to kind of frame all of this for us. And while we're thinking of administering the rod sparingly, purposely, protectfully, prayerfully, anatomically, the human body is designed and created so there's one particular location that seems to be very well suited for it. But that's a detail. But beloved, discipline, the discipline of a father corporal or the broader when children get older you don't you you stop uh, corporal disciplining them. But the discipline the correction aspect is punitive. Obviously and demonstrably, especially the little one that, you know, get the smart. But we understand it is punitive, but it is primarily from our goal, from your purpose, restorative. The idea is to fix what's broken, to straighten what's crooked. And all discipline, men, fathers, must be exercised in love. And if you can't exercise discipline and love, don't do it. Martin Lloyd Jones when he preached through this passage, he basically gave a powerful illustration tying this verse all the way back to where it began. Again in Ephesians 5:18 where he talks about being be being filled with the spirit rather than being a drunkard. And this is what the doctor said. He said this quote, "You can easily irritate a drunkard and provoke him to a violent reaction." He lacks balance. He has no judgment. He takes great offense at a triviality and on the other hand is too much pleased about something which in itself is trivial. He is invariably guilty of excessive reaction but the Christian says the apostle Paul is always to manifest the antithesis of that type of behavior. When you are disciplining a child, you should, should have first controlled yourself. If you try to discipline your child when you are in a temper, it is certain that you will do more harm than good. And what right have you to say to your child that he needs discipline when you obviously need discipline yourself? End quote. Beloved, the point here is a Christian parent, mothers do discipline too, but staying in the flow of the way God treats us here it means, men, your discipline cannot be capricious and uncertain. It can't be unpredictable. It can't be based on mood swings and actions and how your day went. It can't be without reason, control, and balance. And beloved, it is absolutely essential your children know exactly precisely what triggers this and it again cannot be a capricious lack of self-control and mood swing from the parents in my house my children it was basically disobedience dishonesty or disrespect and these are the trigger points and they are completely independent of how mom's day went or dad's day went so You are to discipline your child because it's biblical, it's essential, and it is practical. And it's hard. It takes time. It's not pleasant. It takes time. It takes consideration. It takes control. It takes energy. The temptation is, I am busy, and it it is so much easier to ignore the sin. And to be sure, there are times when you ignore sins, but when it isn't necessary, it's something that you must do. And you may remember, or you may already know, Proverbs 13, the first part of Proverbs thirteen twenty four is where he says the one who spares, the father who spares the rod hates his son. The second part of the same verse states the positive. But he who loves his son disciplines him diligently. So beloved, Restraint, nourishment, discipline. The fourth marker in the second of the couplet of that nourishment is instruction. And your goal as a Christian father is that your children would become owners of the beliefs, practices, and disciplines. You want your child to believe the truth joyfully, to adapt the practice willfully, and to own the disciplines completely. Instruction. The word is nousthesia. It literally means to place into the, the mind. It can be translated as teaching or or warning. In In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, Paul uses this word when he talks about God chastening and disciplining the nation of Israel and even tells us the purpose that these things were recorded. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction. Or when Paul wrote to Titus in Titus chapter three verse ten, he tells Titus how to have even an accelerated church discipline about a factious, divisive man that is splitting the church. And the apostle Paul, Titus three ten says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. And the same word translated as instruction in Ephesians 6.4 is translated rightly as warning. And This is, you could understand, this is the newthetic ministry of the father to his child. And there's nothing new under the sun, either on the negative side or on the positive side. God said through Moses to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 32 verses 46 and 47, listen to these words, take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today. "...which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law." Now watch this, for it is not an idle word for you, indeed it is your life. In, the same, in some of the same way, the Roman father had the physical power of life and death, at their hand in that corrupt system you christian men you have the spiritual power of life and death with the word of god given to you to minister lovingly clearly with conviction consistently to your children and we know that it takes an immense commitment and great care to train your child to be holy this is a daunting and sobering responsibility Being the father of a family is kind of like being the captain of a ship. If you steer the ship safely to its destination, you make it there yourself and you bring everyone in your charge with you there safely as well. But if you don't know what you're doing, if you don't know where you're going, if you're ignoring the warnings, you sink the ship and you don't just destroy yourself but the others with you. And a ship's captain who won't study the maps or pay attention to the warnings endangers not just himself, but all those who are entrusted to his care. And in the same way, a father who ignores the Bible's directions and warnings won't know how to steer himself and his family through the perils of life. And he puts his own soul and the souls of his family at the risk of disaster. That's on the negative side. How about a positive illustration ezra 7 10 beautiful verse ezra godly ezra had set his heart to study the law of the lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in israel men study the bible practice the bible before God with humility, without hypocrisy, live your life in such a manner that your life is a living demonstration of proof of the exhortations and demands even that you place upon your children. And by doing this, you can steer your family to safety in the safe harbor of the truth of the word of God. And what a joy it is to see your children who make the beliefs and the practices and the disciplines their own. And even if they get turned around where they become your trainer, what a joy and a blessing that can be as well. So restraint, nourishment, discipline, instruction. The fifth marker of biblical fatherhood is motivation, motivation. And we can ask the question, what is our final motivation? What is your final motivation, Christian father, for your children? It's not their health. It's not their wealth. It's not their education, their respectability, their reputation. It's not their career. Your final goal, your ultimate motivation as a Christian father is your child's salvation, period. This is ultimately we know all that matters. And even in the text, when we look at this section of God's words to children and to parents, It's framed in the context of the transforming power of the gospel. Look at how this section begins in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then look at how it finishes in verse 4. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In the Lord and of the Lord. So again, Paul frames, God frames these instructions right here, right now to you, Christian fathers, in the context of the transforming power of the gospel, which, by the way, this is exactly and precisely where Christian parents, Christian fathers, are in an entirely different category from unsaved fathers. There are many examples. I come from a family of pagans that are honorable pagans, no divorces faithfulness to spouses respectability and careers good neighbors etc and so forth so even the unsaved can do many of these things but this dynamic of in Christ and of Christ is absolutely unique and impossible for someone that doesn't have the new life that is given as a gift from God in the indwelling Holy Spirit and so Even in the context here, the Greeks and the Romans, they had kind of a man-centered philosophy of of things. So this is not the man-centered philosophy of noble living of the Greeks and Romans. This isn't even the law-centered thinking of most of the Jews that were around at that time. Rather, this is the Christ-centered living and command and exhortation of both Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And beloved, this is your supreme task. man. this is your greatest desire and ambition that your children should come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. This is our main ambition. And raising children who are well-pleasing to the Lord, there is nothing more important at the human level to me than the salvation of my children. Nothing dominates my prayers. I am so blessed that all three of my children are walking with the Lord. And I pray about different aspects and dimensions of their career and their schooling and and all the rest of that. But even now, as men and a woman walking with the Lord and a beautiful daughter-in-law and now a godly son-in-law, what dominates my prayer is their sanctification, is their growth, growth, is their trust, the peace of Lord dominant in their lives. William Still was a 20th century Scottish pastor. He pastored the Gilcomston South Church of Scotland in Aberdeen for 50 years in the early and mid part of the 20th century. He wrote a book called The Work of the Pastor. And this is something he wrote in that book. He said this, quote, Every autumn, I have a spate of letters from fond parents, teachers, guardians, and monitors appealing to me to follow up on such and such a youngster who is away from home at college for the first time and who needs to be hunted Followed, shadowed, intercepted, and driven to Christian meetings. He says, I have scarcely ever known this desperate technique to work. I understand the panic of parents and guardians, but it is too late for them to try high-pressure tactics. Rather, prayer, example, and precept in that order are the means of bringing up children and young folks in the faith Nor will high-pressure tactics and brainwashing techniques avail when young folks have gone off on their own. And this is where he says Christians pathetically put their trust in external techniques and artificial stratagems that young folks go astray. And then he finishes with this. Nothing takes the place of the realism of holy living and secret wrestling before God in prayer for our young people. End quote. Beloved men, you want your children to be able to live in purity in a dirty world, with integrity in a shady world, and with fidelity in a deceiving world. And if you want an example of how out of balance, how out of whack, and how corrupt this world is, there are actually people that like the taste of cucumber-infused water. (laughs) Say no more. And beloved, this task, this charge, this is not a sprint. This is not a 10K that finishes when they turn 18. This is an ultra marathon that you run the rest of your days, the rest of your life. And remember, Paul wrote to the Ephesians not just in the opening greeting and the eulogy but in chapter 3 he wrote about God as the father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name and men the point here is your family can be a taste to the world of God's family your fatherhood can reflect God's fatherhood you have, if God has blessed you with children or a child, you have an eternal soul entrusted to you by the Lord. And you are his or her guardian, his or her custodian on their earthly pilgrimage. Don't beat them down. Build them up. Don't exasperate them. Educate them. Edify them. Don't provoke them to anger. Encourage them to righteousness. And this great responsibility is beyond us. We cannot do this thing in and of ourselves, but for the grace of God. And that takes us back to five verse eight, Ephesians 5, verse 18. Be being filled with the Spirit. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly within you. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord, for your beauty, for your perfection. We praise you as the creator, and we praise you as the author and perfecter of faith, of faith, true faith, and of our faith, of my faith. And we praise you and thank you, Lord God, for the blessed institute of marriage and the beautiful relationship of a parent a parent and a child father help us to excel yet more in all these things thank you for the great work you're doing at santan bible church with husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and children and even the wonderful singles that are such a great encouragement to all of us and father we pray that what we do not know teach us what we have not give us and what we are not make us for your glory for our joy and it's in your name lord jesus that we pray Amen.